How are we doing this morning? There we go. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you on this uh, summer morning. Uh, this, this morning, we are going to have the opportunity to jump into God's Word and to deal with something that's a really light topic, which is uh, God's divine justice and judgment. So if you're excited about judgment, you have come on the right morning. But we're going to see why it's actually something not to feel uncomfortable with, not to feel tension with, but really the beauty in God's divine justice, his judgment, and the power of righteousness. The sermon title in our summer series for this, this morning is Justice Rolls Down, But Grace Rises Up. Amen? So we're going to jump right in, okay? We're going to jump right in. We're not going to spend any time beforehand. I want you to kind of see what's happening right away. Last week we left off with God coming to Abraham and Sarah and giving them a precise time for the fulfillment of his promise to them that they would have a child. So it's one year from uh, the point that God is talking to Abraham and Sarah. And then right after that conversation, Abraham walks with God to go look into, investigate two cities, two very famous cities. So will you read God's word with me? Just a few verses, Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 16. Here's what God's word says. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's what is happening. Abraham is walking with God and the two other men, as we saw last week, the two angels to kind of set them on their way. But as they're walking, God invites Abraham into a conversation about two particular cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that God is inviting Abraham into the conversation because verse 17 says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, Abraham's right next to him. This is like when your friend says to you, I don't know if I should tell you this, but what's your response? No, no, no. Now you have to tell me. <laughs> you can't say, I don't know if I should tell you and then not tell me. You're inviting me into the conversation. Tell me what's going on. So this is what God is doing with Abraham. He's bringing Abraham into the conversation. He's grabbing his attention. And Abraham begins to engage. Now God begins to explain what's taking place so Abraham understands the context. He says, okay, here, here's what's going on, Abraham. There are these two cities, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham knows Sodom very well because his nephew, Lot, lives there with his family. You know these two great cities, I am investigating these cities to see whether or not I'm going to bring my divine judgment upon these cities to uphold justice. Why? Because these cities have an outcry. Their sin is grave. They are wicked. They are cruel. 
and they have an outcry. That word, outcry, means cries of the oppressed. So these cities are so cruel and so wicked that they're oppressing people in the city, mostly the poor, and their cries for rescue and help are extending out of the city limits, and they've come to God. The book of Ezekiel says that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned with God, and they oppressed the poor. This is, these are not, this is not a great environment to be in. And the outcry is coming to God who's looking in to see whether or not divine justice will require his divine judgment. And then he tells Abraham why he's inviting him into this conversation, because Abraham is going to lead a great nation. And through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and Abraham is meant to lead in the way of the Lord. What is the way of the Lord? Well, God defines it by upholding justice and righteousness. So it is essential for Abraham to understand what justice is from God's vantage point and the importance of righteousness if he's going to lead well. So he's in this conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's invested in Sodom because Lot and his family are there. And God is looking into these cities that are wicked and evil to see whether or not judgment will come. So Abraham begins the conversation with God, and which is exactly what God desired to happen. And verse 23 says, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So it, it's, it's very clear that justice needs to be upheld, but Abraham begins to come to God with this question, are you going to sweep away all of the righteous or the innocent in the city just because of the guilty? Is that what you're going to do, God? And Abraham continues in verse 24. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now this feels, when you're reading it, like Abraham is, is uh, bringing an accusation to God. right? Like, hey God, I understand that you want to uphold justice, I understand the importance of righteousness, but are you really going to destroy these entire cities just because of the guilty? What about the righteous? Are you going to sweep away the righteous and the innocent too? Are they going to suffer the same fate? What if there's 50 righteous? Now that's a big question for Abraham to bring to God because these are large cities. He starts at 50. But we know that actually Abraham, as he's engaging this, when you go back to the original language in Hebrew, he's not accusing God. He's actually praying to God. The disposition is one of prayer. He's pleading to God in prayer. He's intervening for these two cities and praying to God that he would actually uphold his character, that he is one of justice and he's one of righteousness. He's beginning to understand what God is going to root deep into his heart and deep into his mind, that God not only upholds justice, but that he so values righteousness. So here, Abraham is, is not trying to sweep away God's justice, that he should not be a just God. He's trying to say, God, will you also value righteousness so much that you would spare, the word spare there is to lift up or forgive the whole city. He continues in verse 
26 or 25, and he's, he is appealing to God's character. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Again, he's appealing to God's character. God, you are just. You're the judge of all the earth. But are you going to allow the righteous to suffer the same fate as the wicked? I'm appealing, God, to your love and value of righteousness. I'm not asking you to sweep away justice, but will you spare, will you forgive the whole city if there's 50 righteous? Do you value righteousness that much, God, that you would forgive all of the guilty, in fact, because of 50 righteous? God responds to him. Probably shockingly to Abraham, he says, If I find at Sodom, verse 26, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare or forgive the whole place for their sake. This had to have been a shock to Abraham. Now he's pleading, he's intervening, he's invested because Lot and his family are there. But God, if there's 50 righteous, will you forgive or lift up everyone, including those arrogant, overfed oppressors? And God says, if there's 50 righteous there, I'll forgive the whole city. I'll lift up and spare everyone. So Abraham takes it a step further. He begins to lower the bar. Hey, God, how about 45? And God agrees. He then goes to 40. How about 40, God? God agrees. He goes to 30. God agrees. Imagine how he's feeling now. He goes to 20. How about 20, God? God agrees. He goes to 10. What if there's just 10 righteous in these two large, wicked, evil cities? Will you forgive and spare and lift up everyone because you value righteousness that much? God, is that possible with just 10 righteous? Verse, second half of verse 32, God answers him, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Wow, just 10 righteous, everyone forgiven, everyone spared. I want to stop there in the story for now. There's two major lessons that are coming out of this part of Genesis chapter 18, the second half. The first one is divine justice and judgment. And the second lesson is the power of righteousness. Let's deal with the first one that we all get really excited to look into, divine justice and judgment. I don't know if you feel this way, but even when you hear the word judgment, it maybe causes a little tension. It feels a little bit uncomfortable, especially if it's connected to God. Divine justice and judgment. Very clearly, there's judgment taking place or there's the, the opportunity. God's looking into whether or not he's going to pour his justice, his judgment onto these cities because divine justice requires divine judgment And we see this, and it's kind of unsettling. Like, I understand that God is just. I've read in the Bible about God's judgment, but I I don't like looking into it. I don't like thinking about it. I feel uncomfortable with it. That God's divine justice requires divine judgment. Why is this? See, when you read here in Genesis chapter 18... You read two reasons why God is looking into these cities 
and is going to pour his judgment out upon them in order to make things right, to uphold justice. One is because of the outcry, because the people are being oppressed and they are crying out for rescue and for help. Now that helps us a little bit, right? Because if there is an evil city and the leadership is so evil that people are being oppressed and are crying out, we are okay with guilty people being punished, right? Like if someone's an evil oppressor, we sleep better knowing that judgment is poured out upon them. That's okay. But everyone, because not everyone is the same level we imagine. Like not everyone's as guilty as everyone else. But God says that his judgment is going to be poured out not only because of the outcry, but also because their sin is grave. Meaning their sin is deserving of the grave. It's deserving of death. Now that's a little bit more uncomfortable because the guilty being punished because they're oppressors we can, we can understand that. It feels more comfortable. But God pouring out his judgment to uphold divine justice because of sin, well, that feels a little extreme. In large part because all of us in the room are sinful. We're broken. We make mistakes. And it's the world we live in. It's what we deal with. And it feels unloving, maybe. Not merciful. You see, we've, we've pitted together these things that aren't necessarily meant to be in opposition. It's very simplistic, but it's, it's happened for us. We put love and justice against each other, and we put mercy and judgment against each other. These things begin to run against each other, and that's why we have this, these fundamental questions. Like, God, do you really judge? Does God really judge? And on what basis does he judge? And we maybe would, if we went around the room, we'd have different answers and feelings on God's judgment? Does he judge? And, and, and on what basis? And how? And when? And, and many of us, we struggle with even talking about this. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, pastors don't get excited to be like, hey, this, this Sunday, it's, it's judgment day. I love it, you know? And you're not like, I'm looking for the churches that are preaching judgment. Like, I'm going to go around, I'm going to find them. Because we feel that tension there, in large part because we put these things against each other. But they shouldn't be. Love and justice are not opposed to one another. Here's a very clear example. If something requires justice, meaning, take the example here in Genesis chapter 18. If the poor are being oppressed, and you know that, and you have the opportunity to intervene, and to advocate for justice, to uphold justice, but you overlook it and ignore it, is that loving? It's not loving. To uphold justice is, in fact, loving. Mercy and judgment. We feel like these things are separate, that they, they, you know, they're, they're at odds with one another, but they can't be because you cannot have one without the other. If there is nothing to punish, then there's nothing to forgive. If there's nothing to judge, there's nothing to be merciful towards. You can't show mercy unless you're forgiving something, unless you're removing a judgment. They're not at odds. They're actually connected, very closely connected. But that doesn't remove the tension for us. We feel, still feel that tension. And I think in large part it's because for decades we have been uh, raised in, we've been affected by a culture where there's a loss of absolute values. We don't uphold things as absolutely true and right. 
or good. We will disagree many times on what is actually just because we can't agree on what is actually right. Absolute values have been lost. So it's hard to advocate for divine justice. It's hard to understand judgment when you can't even determine whether or not something is in fact inherently and absolutely good or absolutely right. It builds that tension in us. We even bring it to God. We have a hard time understanding that God is absolutely just and he's absolutely good because sometimes we feel like, well, maybe I disagree with what God's concept of good or God's understanding of judgment and justice. Let me give you an an example of this. There's a, a Harvard philosopher by the name of John Rawls who has this famous thought experiment. And he says that you can create a just and good society without bringing in your moral beliefs and positions, or your religious beliefs and positions. That people could create a just and good society by just using reasonable self-interest. Here's how he says that he proves that. I want you to imagine a group of people that come together to build a society. They're going to create the society from scratch, but they're given a veil of ignorance. Meaning, he defines that, they have no idea who or what they will be in the society. They don't know their age. They don't know their race. They don't know their education level. They don't know their talents. They don't know their intellectual capacity. They know nothing about who they will be in that society. He says, if everybody operated from that vantage point, you would create a just and good society just by using reasonable self-interest because you could be weak in that society. You could be poor. You could be discriminated against. You could be in these different places. And so because that's possible, everybody would work together to create something just and good for everyone. Sounds smart. He went to Harvard. But there's a lot of problems with that. Here's one of the major problems. It assumes that you can create anything or take a position or build something detached from your convictions, that you can be neutral, that you can be just truly rational and reasonable and not be affected by anything else that has affected you previously. But we know that not to be the case. No, none of us can do anything or take any stance or build anything or create anything apart from our convictions. Our morality and our moral beliefs and our religious beliefs are so deeply intertwined within us that we cannot separate ourselves from them. Take this thought experiment as an example. You could have two people that would create vastly different societies based upon what they believe is good. You could have one person that says, I don't know who I'm going to be in this society, but I believe in personal initiative. And so I want a society with free markets and low regulations and low government, and everybody has the opportunity, regardless of who you are, to make it. That's what's best for everyone. You can have somebody else in that group that says, I value personal initiative, but I'm fearful that people will gain power and they will hold down other people. And so I want support programs and I want more regulations and more checks and balances and I want more government involvement. I think that that's actually best for everyone. Two different people using reasonable self-interest would create vastly different societies. Just and good we differ on. You cannot separate your morality and your religious beliefs from 
your definition of justice and goodness. And the problem that we're feeling the tension of is that we live in a society and we live in a world where none of us agree that there's anything that's absolutely right, absolutely valuable, absolutely true. You probably have heard the term before. It's a society built upon postmodernism, defined in many different ways. I'm defining it as postmodernism deconstructs truth claims. It's relative true. With true for you is good for you, but it doesn't have to be true for me. That could be right and just and good for you, but this is right and just and good for me. That's the kind of world that we live in, but in fact, it's fading. Why? Because if you have no definition of anything that's absolutely true and absolutely right, then you cannot judge anything. So we like that. That's why we don't like judgment, because you can't judge anything if nothing's absolutely true or right. But you also cannot advocate for justice. Because how can you make something right if you can't agree whether or not it is in fact right? That's causing so much tension for us of understanding divine justice and divine judgment because we deconstruct from truth time and time again. And at times it's really helpful in fact to deconstruct because sometimes we've, we've been told things are true that are not true. We've been nurtured or we've been you know, brought up in something that is not healthy and is not good and we need to deconstruct from it, but it can be very, very harmful. And so what happens is we come, to, we come to Scripture, we come to God's Word, we come to passages like Sodom and Gomorrah, and instead of wrestling with truth, we want to deconstruct from it. We would rather at times deconstruct from truth than wrestle with it and work through the tension and get a little bit uncomfortable because sometimes, even when we don't realize it, we go back to, well, I don't know if that's good for me. I don't know if that's right for me. Instead of believing that God is actually the author and the, the authority over what is right and what is good and what is true. So we need to wrestle through it. But as I said, this is changing. Um, one of the ways that it's changing is actually in the art world. If you've never seen the documentary, I think it came out like 10 years ago or something. It's called Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's about famous graffiti artists. And there's a, there's a person in the, in the show or in the documentary that his name is Mr. Brainwash, which is ironic because it's literally what he does. He makes art that is so horrible, but he markets it in such a way that it seems valuable because it's expensive. And people spend millions of dollars on horrible art. And the, what it's exposing is that how, really how postmodernism has affected art. No one can say if it's right or good because you just deconstruct from truth claims. So if it's worth a lot of money, then it's good. And it exposes this reality that we're living in. And this reality we bring into our relationship with God. I want to contrast um, John Rawls and his thought experiment about the world that we live in with someone who sought to establish a just and good society but on stronger footing that wasn't affected by postmodernism, that wasn't looking to deconstruct from truth claims, that actually held absolute values. And that's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. See, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was leading the civil rights movement and he was advocating for the removal of segregation, he was not saying that, listen, hey, this is impractical for the common good. I'm using reasonable self-interest and I don't think this is good for everyone. You know what he was saying segregation was? A sin, evil, wrong, because he knew that human rights are only real if they actually exist. 
Human rights can only be real if they actually exist, if they're absolutely true. He wasn't advocating for reasonable self-interest or, hey, this is true for me. Maybe it could be true for you. No, no, no. He said, this is a sin. This is evil. We need to change it. It's founded upon something absolutely true. That's why he says this. I love this quote. He says, we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Of God. You notice the absolute truth there? Everyone's made in the image of God. Every single person is given value and dignity and honor and worth, not just because I think that's right and good, but because it's absolutely true. Stronger footing. His mission was one of justice and of righteousness. He had come to understand what God is teaching Abraham. It's why time and time again, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is quoting Amos chapter 5, verse 24, where he says that we should not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. See, he understood what God is teaching Abraham here, and that is justice and righteousness, they go together. They go hand in hand. And God is, is establishing this in Abraham. He's beginning to understand it every single time he lowers the bar. Every time he goes from 50 to 45 to 40, he's seeing that justice must be upheld, but God so values righteousness. So values it. The power of righteousness is affecting him. I mean, it's like as if Abraham is saying to God with every single number, God, would you really save the whole city just for a few righteous? Would you really forgive and spare the guilty for just 10 righteous? You see, Abraham here is not trying to, to subvert God's justice. He's not deconstructing from God's justice and judgment. He's not saying, God, that I'm not okay with you being a God that judges sin or that seeks to bring justice to the outcries of the earth. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, do you value righteousness so much that you'd forgive the guilty? The answer is yes. God keeps agreeing to that new number every single time it goes down. Why? Because God's will to save is stronger than his will to judge. God's will to save is stronger than his will to judge. And here's what happens in the story. It ends right there very abruptly. Abraham goes from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, and then he walks away. It's, the climax is begging for one more sentence. God, would you save the whole place for just one righteous? But he doesn't go there. I mean, he knows Lot, his nephew, is there. So, like, it makes like, you should have gone to one. Because if you read the story later, the prayer doesn't work because there's not ten righteous in the city. But it reveals what actually saves. See, this prayer, this pleading prayer, reveals what actually saves. Abraham, we don't know why Abraham couldn't go from ten to one. Maybe he felt like, I'm not going to test my limits here. You know, I got to ten. But he should have gone to one. It reveals what saves, and that is this, that the path through the mountain of God's judgment is on the back of the righteous. 
The path through the mountain of God's judgment is on the back of the righteous. This is something that is absolutely true. Not just true for me. Not just true for some of you. This is absolutely true that the path through the mountain of God's judgment is on the back of the righteous. Abraham couldn't walk it. He struggled to make it go from 10 to 1. He stopped at 10. It was too much. But you know what God teaches and what he reveals? Is that the path through the mountain of God's judgment is on the back of the righteous one because of the outcry of the earth. God brings about rescue and salvation and forgiveness. He lifts up and he forgives while still upholding justice and still pouring out his judgment, but not on the guilty, on the righteous one. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 4 says this. God says to you and to me, I have made you, and guess what I will do? I will carry you, I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. How? By you working yourself to become righteous? No. By you doing whatever you can to uphold justice in your life and lives of others and trying to avoid God's judgment? No. God will carry and sustain and rescue you. Because he has provided the righteous one who upheld God's need to satisfy justice and took the divine judgment that you deserve. God would have gone from 10 to 1. And he has been calling out this message that he wants to carry and sustain and rescue each and every person on the back of the righteous one since the beginning of time. This is not a new message. This is not a message that just came with Jesus. This has been God's message to the world since the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 5 is one of these chapters that we have not read, and it's a chapter that we skip. Here's why I say it's a chapter of names. Have you ever been there? Hey, go back. Don't go, don't go to that slide yet. So, thank you, thank you. I don't want to give it away. It's a chapter of names. Have you been there? You're like, you're reading your Bible, and then you're, you're like, it's a name chapter. You're like, you read the first name, you're like, I got it. You know, and you got the next one. There's a lot of people. Genesis chapter 5 is a list of names from Adam to Noah. It's like a speed up the narrative, okay? There are 10 names there. There's some other descriptions about them, but there's 10 names. And here are the names, okay? Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahala, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Only a couple names that we actually use now. Ten names. You're like, okay, what's the big deal? So if you translate those names, check this out. Before we go to this slide. Adam, his name means man. Seth is appointed. Enosh is mortal. Canaan is sorrow. Mahala's name means the blessed God. Jared's name means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means death shall bring. Lamech means the despairing. Noah means rest. If you put those ten names together, here's what it says. That fell short of God's glory. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest. Genesis chapter 5. Can you believe that? Since the beginning... Of human civilization, 
God has been speaking that he wants to carry, he wants to rescue, he wants to save on the back, not of, on your back and your righteousness, but on the back of the righteous one. Because man is appointed moral sorrow, that is us, but the blessed God shall come down, Jesus, fully God and fully man, teaching what? His death shall bring the despairing rest. He has been preaching and calling out to you and to me that we are saved from God's judgment by God's grace. That justice rolls down, but grace rises up. It was satisfied in Christ, and grace rises up to you. And God wants every single person to hear that message, to know that message. Not just you in the room. To take confidence in it, to find hope in it, to know that your forgiveness, that you are spared, not because you are righteous, but because you're made righteous through the righteous one, Christ. But also that you would be like Abraham, going to God with pleading prayers for every single person that you know, that God would reveal the righteous one to them. That they would be saved, not because they're deserving of it, for they are guilty just like us, but they would be saved because they would come to see the righteous one that brings them rest. This is absolute truth. Here's what I want you to remember. God is not looking for ten righteous to save the whole city. He has already provided the one righteous who saved the whole world. That is the God that we worship. That is the God that we go to prayer for other people. That is the God that we find rest in. Amen? Will you pray with me?